close to you, uh, closer than she ever has before. Father, I know she loves you. I know she walks with you day by day. But Father, I pray that this would be something that uh, brings her close to you in a special way. And that she would see your watch care over her and your loving kindness toward her, even as she goes through treatments. And again, Father, we ask for her healing. We pray that we might celebrate uh, your victory over sin and death, even in this. And Father, we also lift up our brother, Pastor Raymond Ko, over in Malaysia. He has been taken. We do not know what has happened to him. But Father, we pray, nevertheless, that uh, his testimony would go forth boldly among his captors. And that perhaps some of, the, some of the men who took him would be one to Christ through his boldness in proclaiming Christ, even in captivity. That the word of God might not be chained, as Paul said in Philippians. And Father, we also pray for his family and for the church in Malaysia that the gospel, though it is illegal to convert people from Islam to the gospel and to belief in Christ, Father, that that would not be a hindrance and that the gospel would go forth boldly and strongly anyway, that Christ might be proclaimed and worshipped and followed in places where he has been shut out. And Father, we pray uh, this morning for our service. Uh, we ask that you would, as, as we open the word together, that you would open our eyes and hearts to see it and hear it and receive it and to be transformed by it. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may not know it, but the very first schools, the very first public schools established in this country were established in Massachusetts. Uh, they were publicly funded under what was known as the Old Deluder Satan Act. It's a, we, don't, we don't name laws like that anymore. We call them things like Senate Bill you know, 102 or whatever, right? <laughs> but the Old Deluder Satan Act provided that every town that had 50 residents or more was to, uh, was to provide for the funding of a school teacher who would instruct the children in reading and writing, especially, um, but also in mathematics, so that they could understand God's world, but more importantly, that they could read and understand God's word, because they did not want their people to be deluded by Satan by being held captive to being unable to read. They wanted them to be able to read the Bible for themselves and be able to see for themselves what it said so that they would not be led astray by someone saying to them, well, the Bible says. They wanted every person in the United States, uh, at least in that colony, to uh, be able to say, oh yeah, show me where it says. Let's look it up together. And uh, let's see what it has to, has to say. And in these schools, you learned your your ABCs and your 1-2-3s, but you learned your, your theology right along with them. And they taught people the alphabet, believe it or not, by uh, using 
uh, theology lessons and things, concepts out of the Bible. And so famously, if you, when you learned the letter A, you learned that the letter A stood for the word Adam and the word all, and you learned this little rhyme, in Adam's fall, we send all. And they got that right out of the passage we are going to be looking at uh, here this morning, uh, Romans chapter 5. Um, we don't have the privilege necessarily of learning our theology along with our ABCs, but we do have the privilege of having God's Word, which does teach us these things, and of being able to read it, and having been taught, many of us, at our public school to read, and using that as an opportunity to read God's Word. So I would like you to open your Bible up with me uh, to Romans chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be in verse 12 through 21, and uh, we're going to jump into the deep end of the pool. Uh, this, this section of this chapter is considered by many to be some of the densest theology in the entire New Testament. So you'll need to you know, pull up your big boy pants, uh, tighten your seatbelt, you know, uh, and, uh, and hang on, because this is good stuff. In fact, it is, it is magnificent verses that exalt the glory and grace of God. So I want to I just plow into this and talk about how sin's reign brings death to us. So that's uh, verses 12 through 14. Let's look at those together. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there that needs explanation. Okay, so let's start with verse 12. All right? And I'll just give you as a background, this whole section of Scripture, 12 through 21, is based on a contrast between Adam and Jesus. And he's going to set these two figures in opposition to one another. And if you will, uh, Jesus is the type, the, the example, and Adam is the antitype, the opposite of all of these things that Jesus has achieved for us. And Jesus is, his effects on us are much greater than those of Adam, but Adam's effects are there, and they are all, by the way, negative. Every effect that Adam has on us is deadly to us. So look at verse 12 uh, with me. This tells us how did sin come into the world? It came through one man. Who was the one man? Adam. If you remember back in Genesis 2, God gave Adam a command after he was created, and he said this. He said, freely you may freely eat from all of the trees in the garden. Emphasizing the abundance of God's provision, right? And then he says, but of the one tree... In the middle of the garden, you should not eat, because in the day that you eat, you will die. Now, was there anything particular about that tree? The Scriptures call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but I think it was a relatively ordinary tree. The reason it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
is because it was the one tree about which God had given instruction. He said, you can do anything you want with that tree, but you can't eat from it. Don't eat from it. They could hang a tire swing in it if they wanted. They could uh, build a treehouse fort in the top of it. They could do anything they wanted, but they couldn't eat from the fruit. Couldn't eat from the fruit of that tree, because in the day that you do, you will know the difference between good and evil. Why? Because you'll be a participant in evil. And you'll recognize good as something you used to be. Don't eat from it. But what did Adam do? Well, Satan enters the picture, chapter 3. He deceives the woman. And given a choice between the woman and the fruit, and obeying God and life, Adam picks the fruit. And Adam picks, differently than his wife, he picks the fruit with his eyes wide open, knowing exactly what's about to happen. He picks the fruit. And he eats it. He rejects uh, God's command. He rebels against God. And he does the one thing that God had explicitly forbidden. And doing so brought sin into the world. And the entry of sin into the world also had other effects that verse 12 tells us about. It says, death through sin. How did death come into the world? Through Adam's sin. Through Adam's sin. Death, by the way, according to the Bible, was never part of God's original creation. Death was never part of God's original creation. Scripture makes it clear that death came into the creation as a result of Adam and his sin. And as a result, death came upon the whole creation. And it also, according to the Scripture here, it says, death passed to all men. And then it tells us something that is going to really blow your mind. It says, because all sinned. Okay? This is, uh, if they use a theological term, this is the doctrine of original sin. That, that when Adam sinned, so did you. At the moment that Adam ate the fruit, so did you. Now you, you might sit out there thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor, I was not even there. I mean, I was just, I, I, I didn't get, get come into the world until 1973 or, uh, you know, 1932 or whenever it was I was born, right? I didn't come into the world until then. And so how could I have sinned with Adam? But that's literally what the verb tense there, the Greek verb tense there is the aorist tense. Now, you don't need to know that, okay? Um, but what you need to know is, is it denotes completed action that happened in the past. So, you sinned when Adam did. Because you were in Adam, in a sense. You hadn't yet come forth out of his body as one of his descendants, but you were there. Because all human beings descend from an original couple. And so, Adam's penalty of death comes on you as well. And on top of that, you get from Adam what the Bible calls a sin 
nature. And a sin nature means that as soon as you are born, you have a great desire to participate in sin, which you act on as soon as you can. Okay? So let me just give you some examples of what, a, what, a, what they mean by nature. How many of you all watch the migration of the waterfowl in the fall? You like to watch those ducks and those geese fly south. Why do they do that? Because they're ducks and geese. What they do. It's their nature, right? How many of you have ever seen hogs at the fair? You seen hogs? Raised hogs, maybe some of you? Okay. Why do the hog wallow in the mud? Well, complicated reason is because they don't have sweat glands and they need to stay cool. Okay. But why do they do it? Because they're hogs. Why does the dog pee on every stick and fire hydrant and blade of grass in your entire neighborhood? Because he's a dog. Okay? It's his nature. He has to do that. Right? He has to. There's something within him that compels him. I must do this. Right? We have a female dog that does the same thing. And I'm like, come on. We're on a walk. We're not fertilizing every neighbor's yard between here and the end, right? Why does the dog do that? Because he's a dog. So why does a sinner sin? Because it's his nature. In other words, you, according to the Scriptures here, are not simply a sinner because you have committed sins. You commit sins because you are a sinner by nature. So you are a sinner by nature and by choice. You want to do sin and you're born to do sin. Why? Because when Adam fell, so did you. Now that'll blow your mind if you think about it very long. And it doesn't maybe seem fair. If you're an American, you're like, wait a minute, hold on. I never voted for Adam. <laughs> right? <laughs> I did not elect that turkey to be my representative before God on this. Okay? And that might not seem very fair. But it's also not fair that Jesus dies for you and you weren't there either. And that comes about to your benefit later. So hang with me here, okay? Um, Rebelling against God did bring this effect. It brought sin and it brought death to every single person. It brought death to every single person and every single human that has ever been born with a human nature is also born with a sin nature except one. Jesus Christ. Do you know why it matters that He is the virgin born Son of God? Because since He had no human father, He had no Sin nature passed down from his father to him. Because God is his father, not Adam. Amen? So this is why one of the reasons we hold tightly to the virgin birth of Jesus. Because Adam passes a sin nature to every one of his descendants. Uh, hang on here just a second. Verse 13 and 14. Now, in verse 13 and 14, we might expect Paul to explain to us how all this works, right? But he doesn't. 
he just kind of goes off on a tangent and, it, and, and, and talks about some other things that he thinks are important. He tells us how, um, how sin continued to have effects. He doesn't explain how it is that Adam's sin came down to me, but he does say that sin's effects multiply. And he talks about the time, by way of doing this, he talks about the time that existed between Adam being cast out of the garden as a result of his sin and Moses receiving the law. And he says that sin was not counted then. And that might confuse you. You go, wait a minute, what do you mean it didn't count? Uh, What he means is not that sin did not matter, but that that people who were living then did not have that much awareness that they were in fact sinning because God had not given His law yet. And so they may have had some inklings in their conscience perhaps that, hmm, this might not be the best thing. But they didn't have anything in terms of the revelation of God telling them, don't do this, until Moses came and gave the law of God. And and even though they didn't have complete understanding, the full extent of their understanding that they were sinning, sin's reign over humanity still had consequences because they still knew in some sense that they were in sin. And and how do we know that that sin still had its consequences? It says because death reigned. Death continued to happen. Death continued to happen. Remember, as you read, when you, a lot of times people want to read through the Bible, and they start, and they think it's like any other book, and so they start in Genesis, and they get through Genesis chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. They're like, I'm chugging through. Then they hit chapter five. Chapter five is a genealogy, and they and they start reading, and so and so begat so and so, and he had other sons and daughters. And then he begat so-and-so, and and he lived this many years, and then he died. And -and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and he lived this many years, and he had uh, this person, and he had other sons and daughters, and then he lived so many years, and he died. And you read this for umpteen verses, and you're like, who is this blessing? I mean, I know all Scripture is inspired by God, but wow, this is not inspiring to me, (laughs) right? And, and it's because you don't understand the point of those verses. The reason that they are there is to illustrate that the consequences of sin did not simply affect Adam. What did God say would happen in the day that you eat of the fruit? He said, you will do what? You will die. You'll be marked for death. You'll be under the sentence of death. From then on. And not only Adam, but every one of his descendants had the same thing. And so you read the same line over and over and over and over and over and over again. And he died 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 and he died. And we still continue that today. Amen? How many of you all pick up the paper and uh, read the obituaries and find out if anybody that you know has died? Right? I'm not old enough to do that yet. But someday I will be there. Right? 
because the statistics are all in. And if you're a sinner, then guess what? One out of one dies as a result of sin. And so he's talking about the reign of sin. And as sin reigns over humanity, it brings one thing very consistently, death to everything and everyone that it touches. Everything and everyone who is touched by sin dies. Every single one of us. You want to know why the world is so messed up? What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton gave the greatest answer in history. They had a, the Times of London sponsored a contest, an essay contest. They said, write in and tell us what you think is wrong with the world. And we will pick the best answer. Chesterton wrote in and he said, Dear Times of London, in answer to your question, what's wrong with the world? I have offer you these two words. I am. He, he won the contest. Because he's exactly right. According to the Scriptures, what's wrong with the world is that you and I are in it. And we exist in it as sinners. And our presence here affects everything else in the world negatively because our sin brings death to us, brings death to others, brings death to, our, to the whole creation around us. But, and here's the great part, the rest of this chapter talks about how God's grace is much greater in its power and its glory. And whereas sin's reign over us brought death, grace's reign over us brings life. Look at these verses with me. Verse 15 through 17. But the free gift, you want to mark up your Bible, underline, highlight, draw a circle around, put stars around that little word, but. Because this is a huge huge contrast with what went before. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is good news. This is one of the greatest sections of good news in your entire Bible. And there are, they're scattered everywhere. So it's hard to pick what the best one is. But this is one of the top ones. This is great news. That we are not under the reign of sin and death anymore. And I know some of you, as I just talked about how Adam, you were in Adam and so when he sinned, you were tied into it. You were implicated. You got a sin nature. You're subject to death. And you're struggling with that. And you're going, Pastor, that just does not seem right to me. 
I thought I was on kind of a choose-your-own-adventure kind of a deal, you know? And this does not seem right to me that somehow I would be implicated in a sin that I wasn't there to commit. But the Bible says, from God's perspective, you were there. But the Bible also says that even though you weren't there when it happened, a second Adam has come on the scene, and he has come for us. And we didn't vote for him to represent us. We didn't pick him out, but nevertheless, God chose his son and sent him to stand in for us as his free gift to us. He's the free gift that is talking about in this passage. The free gift is not like the trespass. And I want to just say, when he says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. I'm like, Paul, I know you didn't have exclamation points, but you should have put one in here. Should have invented it, right? Because you need to say that in lights, man. The free gift is not like the trespass. The contrast, in other words, is not small. One man, that is Adam, sinned, and he brought sin and death down on us all. But on the flip side, one man, that is Jesus, given a bound, is the one who is given abounding grace from God as a free gift to whoever will believe. And according to verse 16, one act of sin, one trespass against God's law brought condemnation on us all. And we were all condemned. We were all sentenced to die because of Adam's sin that made us all sinners and gave us all a sin nature. But when Jesus came, after there had been generation after generation after generation of sins. One act of righteousness. When Jesus offered Himself on the cross as a free gift, brought justification to hundreds of millions of people. Though there had been hundreds of millions of sins and hundreds of millions of sinners, when Jesus came, His free gift of Himself on the cross cancels out the penalty of sin of death for hundreds of millions of people. In fact, not even that many. Much more than that. Literally billions of people all who will believe have their sin canceled out and their death penalty commuted. And on top of that, enter into eternal life in the presence of God forever as a result of one act of righteousness by this one man, Jesus Christ. And notice the rules rules in verse 17 through one man that is Adam's sin death reigned 
over all humanity, but through the one man, Jesus Christ. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness that He offers, they instead reign in life. Instead of death reigning over us, we conquer death. And in fact, put death to death as we reign with Christ forever and ever. Did you know you, you and I, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, are literally kings and queens in the kingdom of God? You know, I love that scene at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie. It's almost like the day when the kingdom comes and the king passes out rewards. And I love it because as Aslan, the great lion, who is supposed to represent Christ in the world of these movies, passes by each one of these four children, he overlooks their sin. And he gives them a name. And he says to, Ed, to Edmund, the one who um, betrayed him, the one whose, whose sin literally led in the story to the death of the lion in his place. He dubs him King Edmund the Just. It's an amazing scene. Okay. But you and I we'll have our sin canceled out and we reign in life for eternity with Christ because of the we have received the abundance of grace through this one act of righteousness by our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we believe. It's an amazing thing. We reign in life. We have traded spots where a sin was on the throne of our life and destroyed us and beat us up and tore us down and killed everything that it touched. Now we reign over it and we put it to death. We reign in life. And how is all this accomplished? Well, it's accomplished according to Paul in these last five verses through Christ by His grace that conquers sin and death. Let's read these verses. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the text here is just, I think it's just amazing and clear and beautiful, a proclamation of what Christ has accomplished for us. In verse 18 and 19, he is summing up and restating again what has happened here. That just as in the same way that through one sin, Adam made us all sinners and condemned us all to death, so through one act of righteousness, Jesus produced justification and life for every person who believes. Remember what justification is? 
Justification is not being acquitted of your sin. It's not that. A lot of people think that justification means that it's like we're on trial and God says, not guilty, which is pretty good, but it's not good enough. It's not actually describing what the Bible actually says about us. It says, not only not guilty in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the judge, but declared righteous. Declared to possess in their own character, in their own nature, the character of Jesus. That's what it means to be justified. Okay? In other words, you swap out your sin nature for Jesus' own character. It's a pretty good trade. I'll take that one. Six days a week and twice on Sunday, right? I will take that. And that's what Paul says we have. We are justified freely by the grace of God. So if one man's rebellion and sin was sufficient to make all of us sinners and bring us death, then because Jesus was sinless, His righteous death in our place paid the penalty that all of us deserved and is sufficient to provide eternal life to every human ever. Jesus' death is sufficient payment for every human being who has ever lived, ever sinned, and will ever die. That does not mean every human will be saved. But it is sufficient for every single one of us. He is the second Adam, the greater Adam. And in Him, if we have our faith in Him, we have life. Now, let me explain the first part of verse 20 here, uh, where it says, uh, the law came to increase the trespass. Okay, years ago, Ch- uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll, who I love, told a story about the paper, a paper route he had as a kid. Now, I know that some of you don't even know what that is. But back when the earth's crust was cooling, young men had jobs, and one of the jobs that they could get was delivering newspapers house to house, okay? It was called a paper route, all right? Don't ask me what a newspaper is. It's, it's kind of like an app, but never mind, um, <laughs> all right? You could get a newspaper delivered to your house, and a young man would ride by on his bicycle and fling one into your driveway or more often into your bushes or wherever, right? And you would go get it. And, and young Chuck, he later became a, a pastor, and for a short while my pastor, um, uh, was like a lot of young men, he didn't really like this job all that well, and he didn't want to work at it all that hard because it meant that he had to get up early in the morning before the sun and go deliver these newspapers. So he's out there riding down, flinging newspapers, right? And he figured out that if he would just, at the, at the corners of the streets, if he would just ride, instead of going all the way down, just across the yard, he would save himself a few minutes by the end of his route. And so he began to do this. At the time he'd come up to the last lot on the block, he would just ride across the yard and, and cut off a bunch of uh, real estate that he had to travel on his bicycle. And he did this for months. Until one day he saw a sign right out by the edge of the road 
Somebody had written and pounded into their little grass right there next to the rut he had going through their yard that said, do not ride bicycles on this grass. <laughs> okay. And he said, and I thought to myself, it is early in the morning. No one will see me. So he began to ride his merry way across the lawn. When he got to the other side, what he couldn't see was that the author of the sign was standing on the sidewalk on the other end. And Chuck, in his way, said, he goes, it was at this point that he began to share with me and the rest of the neighborhood a few things that were on his heart. <laughs> right? Um, he knew kind of in the back of his mind that he probably shouldn't be doing this. But it wasn't really enough to encourage him not to. Because I've got, you know, I'm saving five, ten minutes on my paper route doing this. And then someone laid down the law. And then he knew what the law was. And guess what? It did not serve to prevent him from doing it. It only increased the severity of what he was doing because now you know what right and wrong is. Right? And so when Paul is saying that the, when the law came, it served to increase trespasses, that's what he means. That God gave his law through Moses, and guess what? People ignored it just the same as they did before. Only now they knew what they were supposed to do. Right? It's just like when you're, when you're a parent and you have a little kid, you, know, you, might not, you might not discipline your kid if, they're just, if they just did something and they were foolish and then they went and you go, okay, well, I never told you specifically not to do that, but now I'm telling you don't do that, right? But then if they do it again, now you've been told. Have you been told not to do that? Yes. Okay. Now the hammer has to fall, right? Because now you're in rebellion. And Paul is saying that that was the function of the law. It came to increase the trespass. It functioned like a sign in the neighbor's yard. It didn't prevent sin from happening, but it made sure that people who did sin were aware that what they're doing is sin, and it made them more accountable to God for breaking it. That's why the penalty for sin was still handed down between Adam and Sinai. That people did know what God's law was. They just didn't, they just couldn't read it for themselves. They knew it in their hearts, maybe, but they didn't couldn't read it for themselves. But after the law was given, it served to increase the trespass by making it very, very clear what God's standard is. So that when we violate it, we do so knowingly. But sin got worse. According to verse 20, sin increased. It didn't maybe get more in quantity, but it did get worse in quality. Because now we were sinning knowingly. They knew God's law and now said, I don't care. I know what it says. I'm doing it anyway. And here's the great part. Look at the last half of verse 20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
and that word abounded all the more is one word in Greek, but it 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 means super abounded. Like it it abounded beyond measure. Okay, so it's almost like if if sin increased ten thousand times, uh, grace increased ten billion times. Okay, if sin and grace were in a marathon together. Uh, Grace crosses the finish line, goes in, eats a sandwich, uh, takes a shower, takes a nap, goes for another run the next day, and then sin starts starts the race. <laughs> okay, it's that kind of a of the of an idea that that grace is is not like it's not like you're saved by grace by the skin of your teeth. You don't just barely skate in. There's so much grace, it overwhelms every part of your sin. Grace superabounded. Grace superabounded. And the end result is found in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus as our sole hope of salvation, we are no longer under sin, and we are no longer subject to its penalty. Instead, we get Jesus' righteousness, and we possess eternal life. We possess eternal life. And there is no comparison between these two things. God's grace far outstrips our sinfulness because we are not simply repaired by God's grace. We gain a status we could have never possessed even had Adam not sinned. Did you know that? Had Adam not fallen, we would have lived forever, but we would have lived forever here. And God would have come down and walked with us in the cool of the day, but we wouldn't be present with Him all the time. And because of Adam's sin, God's restoration has brought us, guess what? The presence of the Spirit of God in our own hearts to where God is with us all the time and lives in us and one day we will behold him face to face all the time for all eternity so Adam had it good let's not discount that but we have it better and we are restored to a status that is far better than we would have ever achieved by any other means We are not simply repaired back to the way we were before we got broken. We are made better than we could have been. It's an amazing, amazing thing that God does for us. And there's a reason why Paul tells us all this. It's so that we might wonder with him at the grace and the mercy and the grandeur and the greatness and the love of a God who does this for His people. Because remember what the early part 
of Romans 5 tells us? God demonstrates His love for us in this while we were His enemies. Christ died for us. And then He goes even beyond that to bring us all the way home and to not just restore us and repair us, but to elevate us beyond what we would have ever been. It is an amazing thing. And the only response to that is to worship and praise God and to fall on your knees before Him and to say, thank you for all that you have done for me. Amen? Let's pray. And then we're going to stand and we're going to sing about the greatness of God. God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your magnificent free gift that is not at all like the trespass. The trespass of Adam brought death, and many trespasses brought increasing death. But one act of righteousness by our Lord Jesus Christ brought life and freedom from sin and death and not just restoration, but elevation into your very presence as members of your very family, your adopted sons and daughters. We have become kings and queens of the King of Heaven. And Father, we are amazed at your grace. And so, Father, I pray that as we stand and as we sing, we might do so with hearts that are full of wonder and awe at what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. And, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing one of my...